Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Candy Show. I'm your host, Candy. We have a special guest in the building. Guys, I want you to welcome Chicago native, screenwriter, music historian, published author. Okay, and I know you guys have heard him on the airways before. You guys know him as a radio personality. We're going to talk about that later. And we, I, and I know that you've seen him on TV. Guys, he's also an on-air contributor to TV One Unsung episodes. That is not just the musical episodes, but also the film episodes. Yeah. All right, guys, I want you to welcome my guest, Mr. Chicago native, Marcus Chapman, a.k.a. Marcus, darling, MC Marcus Chapman. <laughs> Welcome so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Where are you coming from today? Are you in Chicago? I am, and I am inside because it is freezing. <laughs> it's like, you know, people think of Chicago as being cold, but most of the time it's not really that bad. You know, if it's like in the 30s, that's manageable. But it was like seven degrees this morning. Like, come on. <laughs> and it snowed a few days ago so you know it's hard to find parking because you know they got a shovel and move all this stuff yeah so somebody's like are you going to the I was like nope I ain't going to the <laughs> nothing I'm going to the kitchen I'm going to the that's it living room I ain't, nah I'm in you ain't gonna have to get freezing to death nah I'm good I know right okay because it's actually supposed to get better it's supposed to actually get worse tonight too yeah yeah it is so no Super Bowl party for me tomorrow. I'll be <laughs> watching by myself. So, hey. Party in the party in the bedroom. Party in the bedroom. Well, well that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> another show. Right. Late night. Late night. Right. All right. So I read somewhere where you actually started um, collecting music at age four. Tell me about that because most children at age usually are not collecting music, but they're collecting toys. Well, yeah, Tell us about toys that. Too. Yeah, I was into the toys. I was into the sports, all of that. But see, music was a really big deal around the house. Like, and not just my house, but all my family members, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody was into the music. This was in the 70s. And at our house, we had a basement. And my parents used to throw parties in the basement. You know, so they would have the records out. And, you know, and when it was time for me to go to bed, I would go upstairs but I could still hear them through the vent. I could hear the music. I could hear the glasses clink. I could hear people talking. So my love of parties and music started with that. And then, like, my parents, they went to, like, the OJs and Hail Melvin and the Blue Notes, Marvin Gaye, that kind of stuff. But my cousins, who were in their teens, they went to all the funk bands, Parliament, Barcase, you know, Brothers Johnson. They went to that. So, and definitely Earth, Wind & Fire as well. So Parliament... Funkadelic and Earth, Wind & Fire were the two biggest groups at that time. And my cousins would not only get the records, but when they saw that I was interested, they would say, instead of pushing me away, like, ah, get out of here, they say, well, if you like that, you need to get this then, you know? So by the time uh, Parliament was about to have a new album out, um, I wanted to get it. My sisters took me to the record store to buy it, and it was the album that had Flashlight on it. But Flashlight wasn't oh. even out yet as the cut, you know? And that very first record had it came with a comic book and a poster, so you know it was on from there. So I just kept collecting over the years, and you know when 
when tapes started taking over the end of the 80s and people start selling off their records and not paying attention to them, I started going around to my family members and getting all those old records that they weren't playing no more, you know? And that, that's a lot of the stuff that got me started when I got into radio in college. Okay. So, and that, and that how, that's how you came about researching the musical charts also at 17. Tell, tell us a little bit about that because did you already have a desire to be in radio or something affiliated with music since you are such a music lover? No, not yet. Uh, I was just in college going, <laughs> I was just going to college. <laughs> I had no particular you know, subject or nothing, but what ended up happening, uh, I found out that my campus had a, well, in the library, they had all the old Jet magazines. Now, you remember Jet Oof. had the charts in the back? Yes. So we had a subscription to Jet starting in like 86 at my house. And I always wanted to know well, what did the charts look like in the 70s. So when I saw in the library they had all the old jets, I went back and I looked at all of them from like about 1968 to like 85, where I already knew. And I went looking for the charts, but I also read the articles. So it gave me a better feel of what was happening at the time culturally with black people, you know. So and then the next semester, I found out we had a music library. And they had all the old Billboard magazines. Billboard is a magazine with the charts that are like official that everybody talks about, being number one or all that stuff. So I went back and looked at those. And every year, at the end of the year, Billboard puts out a year-end chart. So I went and made copies of all the year-end charts for every year for like 1970 through like 86 or whatever point we, we were at. And uh, that's how I started using those lists for checklists. So I did the song, the albums. Then I went back later and got the rock charts and the jazz charts. And I used all of that stuff to figure out what records I could get. Because, say, if I had never heard it before, if it was the third biggest album of the year, obviously it must have been good. So I could go out and get that even if I had never heard anybody play anything from it. So that's where that got started. You were still, once again, not interested in getting radio. It was just more about the music piece of it. That was, yeah. And then you did actually go into the, the radio field. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's funny because, like I said, I was in school and I didn't have a major. And I got to a point where I had to declare one. I was running out of Gen S to take. So they had an area on campus, the career development and when this little room, they had a book with all these careers and, you know, find out what different things you could do with your life. And when I got to radio or broadcast or whatever it said, and I read it, and it said that people in radio typically didn't uh, work where they were from. They had to be willing to move and that you had to have a upbeat personality and you had to want to talk on the phone. So... And you had to enjoy music. So music, I loved talking on the phone. I had never really been anywhere, so I was okay with the moving idea. So it was like, duh, why ain't I think of this before? <laughs> you know. So not only did I decide to go into it, but I felt like it was something that I could be great at. Like, if I do this, I could be the baddest cat to ever do this. And if I ain't the baddest, I'm going to be one of the baddest. So that just that was totally life-changing because then I had a whole purpose. So... Yeah, I, I just I signed up for the campus station at my college, and I did radio there for three years. I was actually playing my own records, 
you know. And then uh, I did an the ones that you collected over the years. You yeah. actually brought those into the, the the college station. Right. Well, first I was playing house music. Okay, in Chicago you had the house music scene, which was really big in the '80s. But it's different types of house. The the regular house that was tracks the DJs were making was one thing. But initially, house was basically the disco and dance music from the '70s and early '80s. So I was more into that stuff. We called that Deep House. So I was playing that for a semester, but I saw that this was in fall of 92. So I saw, though, that the, the people I was trying to reach wasn't really into that no more. Like the time for that had kind of passed already. So then I switched to playing older R&B and funk from the 70s and early 80s because by this time, it was a whole lot of sampling going on. Like Dr. Dre had just dropped the chronic you know, he had a lot of parliament on there and all this stuff. So I was like, well, let me play the songs that people are, you know, using to make these raps, you know, and that went over a little bit better. So I, I stuck with that all through college. And you actually did land your first real radio job. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the number one, the hottest number one radio stations in Chicago at the time. Right. But that was a process, though. So, like, uh, after my second year doing radio in college, I did an internship at that same station, WGCI, 107.5 in Chicago. It's funny because I, I didn't really like GCI at the time. <laughs> you know, they played, you know, wow. modern <laughs> stuff. They played the current R&B and raps and stuff. And they had started a show called Old School Sunday where they were playing the 70s stuff. But I was already doing that at school. And when they started doing it, people was like, oh, man, that old school Sunday. I'm like, wait a minute, I was already doing that. <laughs> See? <laughs> so kinda, I called it like sleeping with the enemy when I did the internship. But, but I knew that they were popular, so I wanted to see, you know, what it was that made them that way. And because I was playing older music, they actually had me intern with WCI AM. At that time, they were called Dusty Radio 1390. They played mainly R&B from the 60s and 70s. So I interned with them, went back to school, did another internship with a pop radio station in the town where my campus was. And then when I graduated, I had to gradually work my way back into the station because the person who was my immediate boss had left. You know, so... I worked my way in. One of the jocks invited me to hang out on his show, and I was just in there hanging out. And eventually, they invited me in to be what was called a studio assistant. Because back then, this was before everything was digital. So this is okay. in the fall of 95, like August 95. So back then, anybody who was on the radio between 6 in the morning and 10 at night had somebody helping them out in the studio, pulling the music and the commercials because they were on carts. They look like little eight-track tapes, but it would be one song or one commercial, and it would have a number on it. They had a computer printout with all the songs that were supposed to play in what order, and same thing with commercials. So you had to physically pull the carts and put them in the right order so that the person <laughs> would play them in that order. So that's how I got in, but I never you know, saw it as, okay, I'm just going to do this. You know, I was, I had already been on the radio, so I was trying to get on myself. So I was making tapes, you know, and eventually they decided I was good enough to audition for a spot. And 
you know, the night the Bulls won their fourth title, the year they won the 72 games, that was the night that I had my audition and the Bulls won the title and, you know, I did a good show and I ended up on the air staff. Now, with you not having to really go in and think about, hey, I want to be on the radio from the very beginning, you, your voice, is that something that you had to come into while you actually became one of the personalities? Uh, did you, because there a lot of times with people, radio, people on radio, they have a distinctive voice. Right. So tell us a little bit about how you actually developed that whole personality while you were there at WGCI? Well, the first thing I had to do before I even started there, I had to figure out the difference between being a DJ and being a personality. In college, I was a DJ. I was playing records. I had a hat, DJ Marcus Chapman, all this stuff. But when I, when I graduated, I listened to WGCI for three days. But I didn't listen to hear music. I was checking for the personalities. I already knew they weren't picking the songs. I knew that from when I was interning. So like, why are these guys so popular? So I listened and I figured out after three days what I had been doing wrong. So instead of like DJs focus on music, personalities mm -hmm. focus on the people who listen to the music. People who listen to music are doing other things besides listening to music. You might have a radio on, but you might be cooking dinner. You might be driving home from work. You might be going to visit your friends, going to a party, whatever people were doing at that time. So personalities focused on what the public was doing and catered their shows around that in terms of what they would talk about. So they would get the, the public involved. You know, they may have a question of the day and, you know, be like, well, in the newspaper today, you know, the mayor said it's, it's, it's going to be against a lot of have tinted windows. What y'all feel about that car? And people be like, yeah, well, I said, I don't believe that. Nah, nah, nah. And then we get engaging your color. audience. Right. So you were, you were once I figured that part out, I, I was on the right track in terms of, okay, it's not about talking about music. It, it was almost like I was hiding behind the, the music because in college, everything I said was about the artists and, you know, all of that. But it was like I stepped in front of that and, it gave me a chance to show who I was, how I felt. I could find out how other people felt. And in terms of a voice, everybody has a voice. Like you, a lot of people have good voices, but that, that doesn't really mean you're going to be good on the radio just because you got a good voice. It's about the content. What are you doing when you're on the air? It's not enough just to be on that sounding good. But even with that, I had to develop how I used it because you had to learn how to project your voice. Like if you hear, you know, clips of me in, on the radio in 1996, 97, the one thing I say is at that time, I, I was suffering from what I call deep voice syndrome. You know, a lot of guys who have good voices, they think it's all about showing off how deep your voice is, trying to get the mic to capture what's inside. What you're really supposed to do is project your voice outward. And when you do that, it gives you a broader range. It's not as deep, but it sounds better because you're clearer and you cover more emotional range. You could be hype, you could be somewhere in the middle, you could bring it down. And so it makes you sound better overall. So by the time I got to like summer 98, I actually sounded good and I knew how to give a good show with good content and features. So by then I, I was on a roll. And thus, there you go. That's the difference between a DJ 
right. and a radio personality. Right. Yeah. You said that you had to be required to lo relocate and move. Right. Which brings us to Indianapolis. Right. Yeah. Tell us how you came about once you got your feet wet with the radio station in Chicago and you started developing the personality, you also came in and you, we created, you created MC Marcus Chapman. Yeah. Correct. Now tell us a little bit about the MC because I, I didn't know if it was master of ceremony, Mr. Cool, <laughs> Marcus Chapman. Uh, tell us what the MC stands for. Well, the MC thing, it wasn't so much what it stood for. It was the fact that how it sounded. So I didn't come up with the idea to put my initials in front of my name. One of my coworkers uh, named Ramonski Love here in Chicago, he had called me MC on the radio, but I wasn't using it. Then one of my other coworkers, Dr. Love, who I ended up doing a show with here, he told me one day we was hanging out, he said, everybody loves an MC. And he was a club MC. And at that time, this was in 97. So it fit in so many different ways. It, when people listen to the radio, they're not always totally paying attention to what you're saying. So just saying Marcus Chapman, I like that. But you may not necessarily catch that. But when you hear initials, you automatically kind of wonder subconsciously, what do they stand for? So when people heard MC, that's already familiar. But subconscious, like, well, what does that stand for? So that made them pay more attention to my name. MC stood for Marcus Chapman. Yes, Master Ceremonies, you can put it with that. MC was related to hip-hop. And the very next year, hip-hop became the biggest selling genre of music. So it, it just fit in. It just sounded hip. MC, Marcus Chapman, it sounded hip. And then I could break it down. I could just say, people would call, hey, MC, what's up? You know, or they would uh -huh. say the whole thing, however. So... It became a good marketing too. And then around the same time, I started using that clip of Eartha Kitt from Boomerang saying, Marcus, darling. One of my other co-workers, he gave me that guy named Al Greer. And then one of my other co-workers got a Devontae Star actually interviewed Eartha Kitt on the radio and got her to say it. So I had a clip of her from the movie, but I had her from the phone saying it as well. So I was able to use all of that as marketing to get people to remember me. And then like Slick Rick, in the song out of show with him and Dougie Fresh with the MC, I was able to use that and that helped me get my name out. So by the time we got to summer 99, I wasn't just on the radio. I was like the hottest dude here on the weekends. I wasn't working every day, but I had two hottest shows on the station. You know, I had Saturday night, yeah. 610, which is me and Dr. Love. And then I got uh, promoted to host this Friday night mix show that they had just started. Uh, it had a terrible name. It's called Operation Get Down. Which was, <laughs> that would have been a great name in 1979, but 99 was kind of old. But the show was hot, though. So that's how I started to get attention because I was, you know, and I was hosting the biggest party in the city. That was the key, too. Okay. For, for black, young black people at the time, mostly black, you know, that was hot, you know, being able to. It's one thing to be on the radio, but when you do a show and when you get off, you go into to host a club and you get to meet some of the people who were probably listening, it takes it to a whole nother level. Mm -hmm. And we were on stage too. It was three other personalities, four of us on stage. Sometimes it was like being in a rock band. 
<laughs> Got all that hypeness going on. You're like, okay, yeah. I'm enjoying this. Definitely. That's what it was about. I just got my first apartment just outside of downtown Chicago and, you know, added all that stuff up to the club. And, yeah, so it was, life was good at that point. And then your first out-of-town experience was here in Indianapolis? Yeah. Indiana? Right. I know you mentioned auditioning. Now, is that actually, and again, we're talking about what happened before, back when you were on the radio, because we don't, I don't even know what's going on now and how the process is. But when you audition, is it just, okay, they call you, you talk to them on the phone, or do you actually have to go to that actual city and get your first on-air experience? Tell us a little bit about, and how did you get into coming to Indianapolis? Well, at the time, uh, WTLC was going through like a transition. They had always been, I guess, what you call an urban adult station. And they would change into a mainstream urban playing current music. And an opening came up. And what they did, they hired a consultant, a cat named Harry Lyles, out of uh, Atlanta. And between him trying to help them, them making the changes with the music and they figured that they had to go a little younger and they used WGCI as the model station to kind of pattern themselves after. And so uh, something happened. You all had Troy Johnson. He was doing afternoon. Something happened. He got let go. And a lot of times program directors of radio stations, they talk to each other and they, you know, looking around for talent. So Brian Wallace was the program director at WTLC. And I guess he reached out to the program director here, who was Elroy Smith, about, you know, hey, I got an opening, anybody you could recommend. And my name came up. And matter of fact, I got something. Let me see if you can, if you can see this. See this little sheet of paper right here? I see some writing. So tell, t- explain to the audience what you hold up. What this is, this was a note that was left in my mailbox. It was written by the program director. And it has, you know, Brian Wallace, WTLC. It was, it was a note for me to send them a tape to this address because there was an opening. Okay. So I put together this tape right here, this little thing right here. All right. It was like one side I had part of my Saturday night show, but since I had a partner, the other side I put the mix show where it was just me, sent that to WTLC. And then it was a whole process of, uh, you know, talking on the phone, and then they flew me down there. It was actually my first time ever being on a plane. And uh, it's funny because I, later on, I found out usually when a, when you audition, somebody who already works at the radio station would normally be there to run the equipment while you were on the air. But that's not what happened. I had to <laughs> learn a system that day. And For an audition? Yeah. But because I, I also, not only was I on air, I worked in production at GCI. I knew how to use a lot of that equipment. And they were, they were digital at that time, more so than a lot of other stations. And um, yeah, I had to learn how to, some of the stuff I knew how to use already. And oh. then um, I had to go on the air live that night. And I actually had pre-recorded, he had me pre-record the last hour of the show because I was doing six to 10, it was a Sunday night, August 29th, 1999. Okay, so 
I was going to be on the air from six to nine and nine to 10 was going to be what I had recorded before. And that was actually harder to me. But the thing was, I had been on the air for five days in a row the week before that and two nights going into doing that audition. So I was on a roll. So by the time it got to nine o'clock, I remember Brian coming in. He was like, how you feeling? I'm feeling good. He was like, you want to keep going? I was like, yeah, because I'd rather do it live than to do the pre-recorded thing. And it turned out we had to do it anyway because the tape we was using wasn't, it wasn't recording. It, it missed the whole first three hours. So he had to do something, and then it recorded that last hour. So that last hour of my audition is what got recorded. And he played that for the general manager the next day. And uh, about a month later, no, about two weeks later, he called me and was like, let's kick some ass. And, and that's how I got the job. And that's how you got here in Indianapolis, Indiana. And you started, what, September 1999? Yeah, September. I got there September 27th, which was a Monday. And I had to learn equipment and all that stuff, relearn it. And then I actually... Uh, did my first show. It was Thursday night, September 30th of 99. And uh, it was Circle City Classic Weekend. I remember that. And I had the opportunity uh, to listen to, number one, like you just said, your first show, your, your audition. I got to listen to your first show. And then we're going to tell everybody later on how they can actually listen to all of those shows, too, as well. But I could tell the difference. And now maybe that's just me. It sounded like your first night versus the rest of the time you were here, it was a little different. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, I had to get adjusted to uh, being at a new stage because I had been at GCI for four years. So it was certain stuff I was used to saying <laughs> that didn't apply anymore. You know, so I, I almost like, I gave out the wrong phone number. You know, I had to catch myself because I was saying a certain number because we were 107.5. TLC was yeah, 105.7. Yeah. So I had to get used to, you know, different. Wow. And then it was funny because there were people who had heard my last show in Chicago who were listening that first show in Indy, you know. Wow. So, yeah. And, and over time, you know, they they fixed some things with the music and then, you know, I came up with features and yeah, and it, and it just went from there. And I met you, was it 2000, 99? That's how long I've been knowing Marcus, but his memory is a lot better than mine. We met in 99. But, I remember that because, okay. see, back then, TLC was owned by Emmis Communications. And Emmis had the big building down on the circle downtown, Indy. Mm -hmm. And they had, I forget what floor we were on, maybe the fifth floor or something like that. But they also had, for all these stations, they had what they call showcase studios, which were down on the circle. And you could actually look inside. Like, you could invite people in, and people would be walking around. And, you know, so we were in the showcase studios normally Friday and Saturday and some Tuesdays. And I would always be on the road. I'd be like, hey, you want to come down and, you know, hang out, whatever. So, yeah, so that's how that happened. That was in 90. And that was... I enjoyed that time just because of the fact that you were able to, at the time, walk literally past the studio and you could see everybody doing their thing right in there. You know, that was just awesome. Tell us a little bit about your time here. Just some some ups and downs, some some great things that, you know, you could say, you know what, 
I learned from this experience or like one of your most memorable experience or, and also tell us about one of your most memorable guests, whether it be on the phone or someone that you had an interview with. Tell us a little bit about your time here in Indianapolis. Well, the main thing was they brought me in because they wanted to have more energy. Like at that time in radio night shows, six to 10 shows, were highly energetic. You had a lot of phone calls. You had more rap songs played in that time. So the the music was going to be there whether I showed up or not. But the job of the personality was to give people other reasons to listen beside the music. And my big thing was getting the phone lines jumping. So what I would do is I would come up with features to, you know, get people involved. And so, like, when I first got there, I was doing something called the check-in. That was something I had done here in Chicago. It was really just a way to get people to call and say what part of town they was on. And I did that to kind of gauge where the listeners were. Uh, they mostly on the west side, east side, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then in early 2000, uh, Lil Wayne had a song called The Block Is Hot. That was, like, his first hit single. And what I, that was the first song, and I did this with a lot of songs, where I would take the song title and I would flip it and turn that into a feature to get people to call in. Okay, so like with the check-in, people were saying they're part of the town. With the block is hot, I had people call and say exactly what street they was calling from. So that made it more varied. And, you know, it's funny because the song was actually about people selling drugs on the street. And I remember it was a guy who called and said, they selling, they telling where they selling the drugs. And I was like, well, the police listening too. So if they want to say that and get caught, that's on them. You know, I wasn't going to take that away from the kids, you know. So I had that. I had a, a, a battle I used to do on Friday nights. Uh, there was a, a legendary on-air talent here named Herb Kent. He did a battle every Sunday between older artists. So I took that and did it for more recent artists. So they were people from the 90s. So I had like Tupac against Biggie, Lauryn Hill against Janet Jackson and all that stuff. I would do that on Fridays. And then uh, when we got to summer 2000, that's really when the show got really good because I, I started coming up with stuff that was really working. I had already been doing something called Holla Holla. Ja Rule had a song, it hit 99 called Holla Holla. So what I did, instead of having people give shout outs, which everybody did, that was basic, but I took the shout out concept and flipped it to Holla Holla. I was the only one doing hollers, so my name wasn't involved, but it was still a way to market myself because wasn't nobody else doing that but me, you know? And then I came up with uh, the big timers, I had a song called Get Your Roll On, okay? Big hit. I'm not a car guy. I can care less about makes and models of cars. I don't care about no rims, none of that stuff. But I knew other people did. And since summertime was coming up, you know, guys want to get out and be flossing and women out driving. So I had people call, forget your roll on. Let me know what's the ride you're rolling in for the summer. Who rolling in it with you? And people call, yeah, I'm rolling in the 2000 Escalade on dubs and all this stuff. Uh, and then somebody uh, said, I had a chance to listen to that, and somebody said uh, they was rolling on the metro. Yeah, <laughs> which was the the city the city bus line here. Right. Cause see what happened is the kids who couldn't drive, they still wanted to be on the radio, so they would make up stuff. They'd be, like, I'm I'm rolling on the skateboard, I'm rolling on my huffy, and all this stuff, <laughs> you know. And people would that was a big hit for that for that summer, you know. And then they had, uh, I didn't come up with this one, but there was something in the show called The Battle of the Jams. 
Uh, Brian Wallace actually had the idea. I mean, other stations were doing stuff like that. They may not have called it that, where they would put two songs against each other and people would call and say which one was better. And I love that because it gave me a chance to expose songs that hadn't gotten on the radio yet or maybe wasn't going to get on at all. But, you know, people would call and say which one. They had the little boxing sound effects for now tonight's challenger and tonight's returning champion and all that stuff. And I heard they kept and doing it for, for years after I left, too. Um, they, I think they're still doing it because I think it's changed to something else. You mm -hmm. know, uh, you did do a great job while you were here. You did have all of the energy and you most definitely got um, the city involved. And it was a great time. And again, we're talking about back then. It was a great time to listen to the radio because who didn't want to participate and hear themselves on the radio? Right. So I, I enjoyed that time. You were here for a little over a year. Um, but I'm, I'm going to kind of change this up real quick. The last time I seen you was about two years ago. Right. And uh, during the expo and then also uh, at the time, the station here, who you were a part of at one time, had their 50th anniversary. Right. And, you know, like mo with most jobs, you you do well and you just want to expand your talent. So at some point you did decide, hey, you know, I got to expand my talent and you were offered other opportunities right. in different cities. Is there anything else? Because I want to get into your time here when I seen you two years ago. But is there anything else that you wanted to add real quick that you want to make sure that you get out there? Any other accomplishments that you had when you were here in Indianapolis, Indiana? Um, the, the only thing I can think of, I wouldn't say it's an accomplishment, but one of the highlights for me was uh, getting a chance to broadcast live from the, it was the Up in Smoke Tour, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem. Ice Cube, oh. the whole West Coast. I mean, they was hot at that time. Dr. Dre had the hottest CD out. Eminem came out with a hot CD. And they came to town uh, June 30th. And I brought, I did a live broadcast from the venue. It was at the Conseco Fieldhouse where the Pacers played. Um, I interviewed Exhibit over the phone a couple of nights before that. I interviewed Mac-10 at the event. Got to go on stage. It was early on before everybody was in their seats. But me and some of the other people from the station, Went on stage, went backstage, got to holler at Dre and Eminem and um, I forget who, uh, Exhibit. Yeah, because I remember because we talked on the phone and when he met me in person, he was like, you see Marcus Chapman, we did our thing the other night, baby, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and then uh, once the show was, once my on-air part was over at 10, I went and watched the concert and that was like the best concert I ever seen. I love bands you know, live music, but that rap show, that Dr. Dre Snoop Dogg show, that was the best concert I've been to. You know, the sound was crisp. It was on point. And then I hosted the after part. You know, matter of fact, uh, I got some message to show you. Uh, check this out. Come on now, tell it. This is the flyer from the after party that I hosted. All right. So, and it was a crazy You collect party. a lot of stuff. Uh, it was at the Cozy. It was a restaurant downtown. I always wondered, like, do these guys smoke as much weed as they say on these songs? I never <laughs> asked that question again after the party because they, they, they set the smoke alarm off up in that place. It was crazy. That was definitely one of the highlights. Oh, uh, man, I tell you, I was, I was there. I went to that concert. It was nice. It was yeah. definitely nice. I got a picture of you in that concert. Didn't I send you that? Yeah, you actually did. And you know what? I was going to post it 
tomorrow or sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it because it was a photographer that ain't Jeff Kelly, and he was just snapping pictures, you know, of different people coming in and everything, and he got one of you. And I was like, hey, I know that. You know, so yeah, that was that was a big highlight. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Let's talk about your time real quick when you came back. And I know you have other accomplishments, too, as well. Um, let's talk about when you came back two years ago now. Tell us a little bit about that. And I remember I ran into you through Expo Time 2018. I swear, I keep it just seemed like last year just went by so fast that I'm like, I have to really sit and think. I literally had to go back to our pictures to be like, uh, okay, that was 2018. So I seen you at Expo 2018, and then I know <laughs> seeing you again at the 50th anniversary. Right. I can remember that day because it was windy as crap. I thought we were uh, in Kansas City, like, you know, the Dorothy stuff. I had never been in so much major wind situations that day, but it was a bomb. It was awesome. But I know you have a story that you want to tell about that. Uh, well, that was a nice event. It was a nice event. I mean, it was it was the radio station's 50th anniversary. Uh, WTLC is what we call a heritage station. You know, most cities have a station that's been around for years and years, and the other ones that haven't. And uh, they were in a unique position, though, because most of the stations that are like that, are playing current music. So they can't really celebrate their past because it's going to make them look old to the kids they're trying to reach now. So TLC is an urban adult, so they could, you know, have a celebration like that. So it was cool. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of personalities. Uh, the only regret that, that I, the mistake I think they made, they didn't bring all the personalities up on the stage because they had the big screens where you could see, like, Guy Black was hosting. Mm -hmm. He did a great job. They had Tom Joyner. They were giving out awards to people who deserved them and all that. But they had the personalities at a couple of tables in the middle. At one point, they had us all stand up. But most people who were there didn't necessarily know who was who. Like, I didn't even know who some of the cats were because, you know, they were working at the 70s or 80s, and I didn't know all of them, you know. So that was the only thing I thought they could have done better. They they should have brought everybody up on stage, you know, so people could know who was who. But other than that, I mean, it was it was a nice event. Yeah. The one thing that I regret from that night was that I didn't get a chance to get my pictures because I love my pictures and everybody knows if they know me, I love taking my pictures. I didn't get a chance to get a picture with Mr. Tom Joyner. So that's the one person that I really wanted to get a picture with. But by the time I tried, I was like, you know what, it's, not the best time. So when you left here in what, December, 2000, yeah. last date was what? December 27, 2000. Yeah. My last show was December 22nd. That was a Friday. And then I went back home, came home for the holiday. Got back down there to finish packing. Movers came December 27th, you know, took everything. I had my car shipped and I hopped on the plane. I was out. So tell us a little bit about now we talked about you being an on air personality, but you also had some other accomplishments after you left here. Let's talk about your book. Well, talk about the book. Actually, um, first of all, the title, I like this, the 2015 title of and I have to read it because I know I might just mess it up. So I want to make sure I get it correct. The coolest music book ever made, a.k.a. the MC 500. Tell us a little bit about that. The MC500 was actually a, a thing I did online for my birthday in 2013. 
when I was about to turn 40, I wanted to come up with a list of like my all-time favorite songs, my 100 favorite, because they used to do the 100 greatest this and 100 that. And then I figured out, I was like, nah, 100 not going to be enough. So I came up with the idea of the 500. And I like did it in a countdown form. I was posting clips on from YouTube for the songs and putting them on Facebook and Twitter and all that. And when I got about halfway done with it, I decided I wanted to preserve it in book form. So uh, once it was over, I eventually got a deal with a company to do that. They ended up giving me the rights back. They came up with the idea of splitting it in half. So it would be 250 songs in one book, 250 in another. Wow. So um, in 2015, that's when the first version came out, the first volume, which is the white one. And then uh, in 2016, the black one came out of volume two. The first one is what led to me getting on TV because the book came out, uh, I want to say it was June 1st of 2015. My birthday is the 5th. So when it came out, I tagged a lot of artists on Facebook who I'm friends with who are mentioned in the book because they have songs in it. And on my birthday, I remember Fred Alexander from Lakeside called me through Facebook Messenger to wish me happy birthday. And uh, he mentioned that they had an unsung episode coming up. I was like, oh, man, I got to be in that. Because uh, when the book was coming out, a friend of mine named Sherry Pettiford in L.A., she had asked me, you know, what are some of the things you want to accomplish with this? I said, well, I want to be a go-to person for music documentaries. And she was like, well, one of my friends is a producer for Unsung. I was like, okay, so her name is Classietta Davis. And she hooked me and Classia. We had dialogue on Twitter and eventually we talked. So when Fred Alexander from Lakeside said they were doing an episode, uh, I called Classy and she was kind of on her way out of the Unsung circle. But since I had the book out, was able to send her the digital copy of it and the link to it on Amazon. She sent that to her boss at Unsung's guy named Mark Rowland. He was able to go through it, see I wasn't just some dude trying to get on TV that I actually knew what I was talking about. Uh, I was in Dallas at the time. They had a shoot coming up for Lakeside and Johnny Taylor. So the producer of those episodes called me. They invited me to the shoot. I filmed for both of them. It went really well. Then after that, they started flying me out to California to do the other ones. So I ended up eventually uh, with 16 unsungs oh, wow. and two unsung Hollywoods, which gives me the third most appearances in the history of the series, you know? So, and then the, wow. the second book came out in the middle of that. And yeah, so that's how all of that got connected. Everything's connected from the very first time you started collecting music at age four, everything has connected you from that moment. Yeah, wow. And is that that so what classifies you as a music historian? Just for some people who might not know. Yeah, it's funny. I actually did a video about that. <laughs> like back, I think that was in 2017. Um, uh, the, the research that most people love music. That's not out of the ordinary. I love music research. Historians do research. It's not just listening to the songs or listening to the records or the CDs or the streams or whatever. It's wanting to know information behind it. You know, how did people respond to the music? What went into making it? You know, why did this particular album do well, but this other one is just as good, but it didn't? You know, 
So doing a lot of reading about that, there are books that deal with all of that stuff that have the, the chart info uh, from Billboard. So having books like that and, and reading books about particular genres and eras and artists, like I may read four or five books about the same artists. You know, they may come out with an autobiography. Somebody else may write a book about them. And somebody else may do another one. And just to get different perspectives, if it's somebody I'm really, really into, I'll check out all of that stuff. Most people don't do all that. Most people are just good with, you know, I like this and I like this artist. I like this song. That's it. <laughs> you know, but historians track, you know, the impact of the music and getting into more details. So there's not a whole lot of them, you know, and I, I'd say I'm the top music historian in the country under the age of 50, because most of them are a little older. So I just get them they props, but yeah. Okay. Wow. Is there anything else that you'd like to add besides the fact that we're getting ready to talk about, first off, we're going to talk about how all of that actually brought you into where you're currently about to be at now. Actually, you're really there, but tell them, first of all, before we end this, tell them how they could reach you, follow your journey, because I know you have a lot of your old shows as well as some other things that you have on your YouTube. So tell everybody about that. Give them that information. I'm easy to find. <laughs> I ain't ever had nobody. <laughs> so it, all my stuff okay. is simple. At MC Marcus Chapman. YouTube has playlists for every year of my radio career. So you hear clips of whatever from Chicago, Indy, Dallas, whatever year. Uh, TV stuff, you know, all of that's on YouTube. And then I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay. I'm so I'm easy to find. Cool. So, Marcus, I don't know what you did with your phone. <laughs> but I didn't do nothing. What I see is, <laughs> wait, yeah, I, I swear. Like I your face is just so, yeah. <laughs> it's so big. Yeah, I didn't do nothing. It's just like, <laughs> I don't know. I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you are big. It's like a big old face. Right. So I yes. Moved back a oh. I don't know what that's called. <laughs> so, hey, I ain't doing nothing. Oh. Guys, this is the candy show. It is real. It is raw. It is natural, and it's not. It's not scripted. It's all. It all is unscripted. Right. <laughs> oh gosh. historian it led you into being on unsung and then you also <laughs> led you into uh being a published author of two books you currently have a project right now tell us a little bit about that yeah well working on getting <laughs> well, a movie done yeah because uh, there's actually more than two books even before those two music books i actually wrote an autobiography 
about well, 11 years ago now. It came out in 2010. I wrote it from late 2008 to 2009. And then um, that was, it was always supposed to be a movie script, though. It was never supposed to be a book, first and foremost, but it was. And so, yeah, I'm doing a movie about the early part of my radio career from 1995 to 2004. So that's the, the biggest thing that I'm doing right now. That's my main focus. Uh, there's some people, producers who are interested in it, making it happen. So I can't give a date right now on anything, but we're making progress in the right direction to getting it made. It's, it's kind of like if you ever saw Wolf of Wall Street, it's a, wow. it's, a, it's a wild movie like that, except it's for the radio industry. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no well, drugs. Well, if you need an you know. actress, huh? if you need an actress, I can act. Well, you can definitely see I can cry. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a lot of actresses in it, definitely. You know, and it's going to, it's, but because it's based in the 90s, early 2000s, it has that nostalgia aspect to it. And so most of the actors are people who, you know, they in their 20s now that are probably going to be in it. You know, they was just little kids at the time, or if they were born at all. So I'm sure it'll be fun for a lot of them to, you know, reenact scenes from, you know, before they were born and when they were little. But yeah, that's the main I like thing. movies like that because you get, you get to bring up all the different hairstyles and all the different clothing and things like that. Especially, <laughs> so... Uh, again, if you need an actress, let me know. Right. I'll be available. As long as it's after our worldly situation that we got going on right now, it's safe. Right, right. All right, so make sure you repeat your stuff because I know I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> let them know once again how they can follow you, purchase your book, subscribe to your YouTube. Tell them about that. Yeah, all that, again, that's a MC Marcus Chapman. Um, nothing else to it. <laughs> it's real simple. I ain't hard to find. MC Marcus Chapman. Yeah, all of that stuff, you know, in, in time, all of that stuff will be coming out. So right now, it's just more so about getting that made. But I do want to go back to my time in Indy, though, because, you know, that was real significant, not just for me, but in radio in general, that was like a really creative time. It was before the corporate takeover radio. So it was really a lot about creativity. Everybody was trying to win. And that's how I got there in the first place, because they wanted the best person they could get for the job. And the reason why I left was because of that, too. You know, mainly, I'd say about six months into me being there, I started getting attention from other radio stations. You know, I remember one day, one Saturday, I was off. And I went uh, to a spot called Frogs Records. <laughs> that. And that was a legendary spot here. Yeah, and I remember buying the Dr. Dre 2001 cassette tape because I had the CD already, but my car had a tape deck in it. So I bought the tape so I could play the tape in the ride. And when I got home that day, I had a message on my answering machine. I'll show you how long ago that was. Uh, from a guy <laughs> uh, named I know Reggie people Rouse. still got that. Yeah, he was the uh, assistant program director for WPGC in D.C. Okay, that was a station Donnie Simpson was working at. He was doing mornings there. You know, Donnie Simpson, that used to host video show on BET. Yes. He wasn't with BET at that time anymore, but two of the other people they had on the station were. They had a cat named Adilu who was hosting um, Teen Summit, and they had Tigger who was on the basement. <laughs> 
the, the rap city. And they figured one or both of them would end up leaving. So they were looking around, I guess, to see who they could get if they needed somebody. And I don't know how they found me. I didn't send them no tapes. <laughs> you know, so I was like, how do these dudes get my number? I don't know. But they expressed interest in me. I sent them a tape. You know, they thought I was great. But this was like March, April 2000. And my deal with TLC wasn't going to be up to September. So um, nothing ended up happening in terms of getting hired there. But that kind of got the ball rolling, you know, mm -hmm. because when I got hired there, I always kind of figured it was going to be about a year or so because most of the industry was on the East Coast for urban radio. And I really wanted to go East, so I saw it as well. One of my coworkers here even told me, he was like, well, this could probably get you to the next step, you know? So I started getting attention, like I said, from other stations. There was an opening in Miami that came up to do 610 down there. And I want that job bad too. It was like, <laughs> I had just turned 27. It was like, man, oh. you know, you be on the number one station in Miami doing six to ten. I'm gonna be on the beach broadcasting live, bad ticks and bikinis. I'm gonna be at the loop parties. It's gonna be oh. <laughs> you know. And I remember the uh, the lady who was the, the the program director was hard to get, but his assistant it was a lady named Danella Duran. I remember calling down there every day. Did he get the tape? Did he she was like, well, you wanted the top candidates because. He listened to your whole tape and he got it sitting on the desk. Most of them he just played for five, ten seconds and throw them in a box, you know. So I didn't end up getting a job, but I was one of the top candidates then. Opening came up in Raleigh, North Carolina to do afternoons, you know. Mm. That was on the table. Then something came up in Philly. They had, you know, afternoons and nights. And I was going to fly out there November 1st of 2000 to audition. And, um, but I remember the guy telling me, he said, uh, my big boss is coming in town and I got to wait for him before I can make a move. And I never heard from him again because his big boss was a cat named Steve Hegwood. He was in charge at Radio One of most of the stations. And uh, at that time, a lot of radio stations were starting to do a thing where instead of getting the best person they could get, they would get whoever was the cheapest they could get. So they ended up just hiring some cats who they already had and moving them from part-time to full-time. But around that same time, the D.C. people hit me back again and was like, look, it's an opening at a top 10 market to do six to 10 nights. We can't tell you what city it is, but call this dude right here. There's a dude named Dr. Dave. He did production for a lot of radio stations, still does. And I sent the tape to him. And that station, they had a consultant uh, named Jerry Clifton. And um, he was consulting that station. Dr. Dave gave my tape to Jerry Clifton. He told the, his clients about it. It turned out it was K-104 in Dallas. So this, okay. this particular station, you know, was, was real big. You know, they, they were one of the biggest stations in the country. They paid real well. And so November 1st, 2000, I was supposed to go to Philly. But instead, I ended up going to Dallas. And they flew me down there and, you know, took me to the club. I remember when, I'll never forget, when I got to the hotel, they put me in a hotel that was connected to the airport. And when I turned on the clock radio, they was playing uh, Miss Jackson from Outcast. That was the hottest record out at the time. And um, I remember telling, I was on the phone with my mom, because my mom, she was real into all the wheeling and dealing. You know, I was telling her what was happening. And so they were broadcasting live from the club, too. So it was like, okay. So they program director Skip Cheatham picked me up 
he took me to a club in Arlington, Texas. And I remember the DJ got on the mic. He's like, we got K-104 Skip Cheatham in the house. All girls start screaming. I was like, I was like damn, y'all got it like that? <laughs> you know? Then he took me to another club in North Dallas. And that was popping. And um, then the next day, we went out to dinner and all this stuff. And about a month later, you know, they made me the offer. And the offer they made me was the TLC had made me offer to stay. And it was a fair offer. But by Indianapolis being a medium market, what they paid wasn't what would, you would get paid in a major market, especially not for a station like K-104, because like I said, they paid well. So it was a big difference in price. So it was like, you know, am I going to stay here and complain about something that I'm not digging, or am I just going to try something new with these folks? So that's how I ended up leaving. And see, that's the thing, because Indianapolis isn't a major market. And so it's really hard to keep people here in that type of a business. So I know that it's a lot of, I don't want to say, (laughs) right, it's it's gained its notoriety, let's just say that. But I don't want to say turnover, but there's a lot of people that are in and out. Right. of that type of a position. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this. Whew. First of all, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on the candy show <laughs> and giving me a laugh too, because you still haven't fixed that. It was hard for me to keep a straight face. I'm going to tell you right now, it was hard, <laughs> but I know that, um, it was it was such a hard thing to do to leave here because first I want to say thank you for coming to Indianapolis and taking that first step to even leave your hometown from a major market area to come here to Indianapolis and put your stamp on the city. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the time, like I said, when you were here. Uh, I will never, ever, ever forget Marcus, darling. You know, every time I think of you, I think of her. And MC Marcus Chapman. <laughs> but you know what? That's a- because at that time, radio was about getting your name out there. A lot of people hear that stuff now. And because I was teaching here a few years ago, and sometimes people who weren't really around at that time, they get it mixed up. They think, oh, well, this dude is full of himself. Oh, this dude love his name. Like, no, dog. That's what you were supposed to do in radio back then. You had to make yourself stand out. You couldn't just go in there and get people on radio requesting songs and giving shout outs. You had to come up with stuff to get people to listen and keep them there. And part of that was marketing, getting your name out there. So when you went out in public, people knew who you were. They they didn't know what you looked like necessarily, but once they found out, it was Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I like him. Yeah, I listen to him. Yeah, you know. So that's part of what all of that was. So if you wasn't doing that kind of stuff, you wasn't really popping. Just like taking um, Q-tips on Vibra thing, where you say getting back to my MC status. So I took that and made something with that and, and used that. I got in trouble for that. I, I got chewed out over that a few years ago. <laughs> you know, by Just recently, a few years ago? Yeah, this was in 2017. I got chewed out for that by the person I was working for because he thought I was you know, just trying to promote myself. And I'm like, oh, this, you know, this is what it was. So, yeah, I mean, that's just how the business was. And, you know, you were supposed, people were supposed to remember. 
out of here. They don't want you to be <laughs> You know? So it's what it is. Well, yeah, I enjoyed, you know, being able to do it. It wasn't it wasn't all easy. It was a lot of stuff, negative stuff that I had to deal with as well, you know, whether it's outside the station and sometimes inside the station. But the stuff that lasts is the clips of the shows. So, you know, when I hear those clips, I can hear me being creative and you know, having one of the hottest night shows in the country at that time. So, and guys, you make sure you go on YouTube, look up Marcus Chapman. You can hear all those clips too, as well. Those were, I mean, I enjoyed listening to them. It's just like, oh wow, I think. And and the format of the radio, and as far as the songs and stuff like that, they changed. It's yeah. a lot of stuff, but it it brought me back to those days. Be like, oh wow, uh, it was it was dope to hear those. Old yeah, shows. think I worked at Hot 96 because they were a hip hop station, and that's what was on my show. But that's that's not true. I was at TLC at the time when they were trying to, you know, be younger. But when Radio One bought them, they had Radio One had already bought 96. Then they bought TLC, and when one company owned two stations, they're not gonna have them do the same thing. So they flipped mm -hmm. TLC back to kind of what it was before I got there, more urban adult. And so a lot of people, even if they remember me, because 96 is hip hop and they remember that was what I was doing, they think that I worked at that station instead. But that's not the case. I was actually on TLC. It was just a unique time in their history. Okay, is there anything else that you'd like to say before we get out of here tonight? Uh, no, thanks to, you know, thanks to all the people who listen, thanks to the party promoters that, that hired me to host stuff. Because that was a big thing back then. Uh, my man Butterman did my birthday party. He used to do stuff with a cat who played for the Colts named Derek Holmes. They they threw stuff that they would always hire me for. It was a cat down there named Tommy. He had a club called Cousins. It didn't really jump, but he had me out there sometimes. Uh, my man uh, Rodney Rivers and his partner Clarence from Butler University. They used to have me host events for them. Because for me... You know, being on the radio is one thing, but when you host events, that's like an artist doing concerts. You get a chance to meet the audience. You know, you can make extra money. And that's where all the legendary stories come from. They don't come from being in the studio. You might get some from in there, but if you don't get out and be with the people, that's the, the essence of it for me. And being 26, 27 at the time, hosting parties, there wasn't a whole lot of them, but at least there was some, and that gave me some chance to get out and meet the audience. So, you know, that was a little more difficult to do than it should have been. I got cut out of some stuff that happened too. But, uh, you know, so I want to thank those cats for, for having me host stuff for them when I was down there. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the Candy Show. I want to thank you so much for being a part of Indianapolis history. Excuse me. Let me just make sure I get this clear. <laughs> hey it's all natural here unscripted right. raw and real but like I said I want to make sure that everybody follows you hopefully at some point get to check out your screen writing show book no, it's, play it's all these things <clears throat> okay it's so movie all right well, that's the first step. The first thing is a movie, and that's mostly going to deal with stuff that was here in Chicago. Then the next step oh, okay. is to do a series, 
which deals with stuff from when I wasn't in Chicago because it's two very different experiences. When you do radio in the city you're from, there's certain stuff you can do that you can't do when you leave. You know, like I used to have a routine every Thursday. I Once I moved out of my mom's crib and I had my own place, every Thursday I would go back to my old neighborhood, get a haircut, you know, hang out with the homies from the neighborhood, go visit my mom. You know, sometimes uh, on holidays, I might hook up with my cousins, watch old concerts, Parliament, Bootsy from the 70s, whatever. Once I came down there, that was over with. Can't do none of that. And no. when you work in another city, the only thing anybody knows you from is from the radio. It was only two people. I only knew two people in Indy before I got there. There was an older guy that my mom used to date in the 80s. And then my boy James was down there. He was from Gary, and he had moved down there the year before. That was it. I didn't know nobody else. So everybody only knows you from the radio. So there are times when you need to get away from the business. You got to unplug, just like a phone. You know, you can't just be going, going, going. You're going to have to recharge at some point. And really the only way to do that in that situation is to be by yourself. So I spent a lot of time by myself, especially in the first few months I was there when nobody really knew me. And honestly, Indy, maybe it's changed a little bit, but it had the reputation back then of being a city that didn't embrace new stuff right away. Like, they ain't like nothing new. <laughs> you know? So, it was some people... We're still Naptown. <laughs> really? It was We're still Naptown for a reason. With me from the beginning, <laughs> but a lot of people was just skeptical just because, like, well, I don't know who this dude is. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. You know? But I ended up spending a lot of time by myself back then. This was like late 99. You know? So, I was at home reading old Vibe magazines and watching the Chris Rock show and, you know, watching Def Comedy Jams. They had just came out on VHS and I had ordered all this stuff. So it took a little while before people got used to it. Once it got to 2000, I guess people was like, okay, well, we used to hearing this dude now. So that's when mm -hmm. it got a lot, you know, better socially. You know, it was still a lot of time by myself because the club scene wasn't as popping as what, what I was used to. But, you know, it was still times where I had to get away and the only way I could do that was by myself. So you, you end up spending, you know, you don't get to do everything. It's a difficult transition. But once you make it and you focus in on what you're doing and people get to know you, then it starts to go a lot better. Are you know so guys, I think, can I, can I mm -hmm. add one thing? You, you don't know this. Sure, part. go ahead. So a couple of years ago, probably about three or four years, I actually had the chance to come back to Indy to work again. Oh, really? What? it would have just been a part-time thing on the weekend. So I would have had to drive from Chicago to Indy every weekend to be on the radio. I was like, nah, I ain't, I ain't about to do all that. <laughs> you know? And that's what, three hours one way, three hours coming back? Two and a half. That's a lot. Yeah, every weekend. I mean, I ain't even trying to do weekends here, okay? Because <laughs> radio don't really pay no money unless it's a station that's in the union. So there was one station here I was willing to do weekends for, but they passed me up like three or four times. So right, we ain't going to go into that. But yeah, to, to be driving down there every weekend, it's like, nah, I have a thing that I call leave it at the height. You know how Michael oh. Jordan hit the last shot and he kept his arm mm -hmm. up and then he was out? I get it. You know, then years later, he came back and played for the Wizards. It's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So my thing is, if you've taken something as far as it can go and you did real well with it, unless it's something you just love or you can 
pick back up and go to a higher level than you were before, leave it where it was at. Like a lot of people waste a lot of time and like trying to recreate stuff they did. And they don't, it, it, they don't realize a lot of times it makes them look bad because it's like, if you were doing it on a certain level and then you come back and you try it again, but you know where near that, it, it almost kind of takes away from what you did before to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. You know, now if you just love it that much, go for it. But I ain't love it to the point where I'm getting ready to be driving down there every weekend. It's like, I did what I did. I, I had my impact, even though it was, you know, 20 plus years ago now, still it, it's recorded. You know, you can hear the stuff. You know, I didn't feel the need to come back and do that. If they would have been like, you know, can you do afternoons, you know, during the week, then I would have considered it. Like, okay, well, maybe. You know, I ain't saying I would have definitely did it because I was happy with where I left it, you know. But I would have at least, but to just do weekends, it was like, eh, that ain't even going to be worth the gas money because, you know, it, it just, and that's a lot of wear and tear. Like, nah, I'm good on that, so. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like if you were basically, if you were given the right opportunity, you would definitely go for it. Um, well, I ain't going to say and that. I, that was, again, that was three, four years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, uh, my feelings about stuff change fast. So, you know, what I did, okay. what I did two years ago ain't necessarily what I'm going to do next year. So, but I just yeah. did want to put that out there just so people know that that was a possibility. You know, maybe if I could have wow. been at home on a computer, maybe. But then I wouldn't have been able to talk to people on the phone. And that was what I was known for. So, you know. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to leave it right there. Really right there. Guys, thank you so much for attending another episode of The Candy Show. Make sure you follow Marcus Chapman. You can also see him. Oh. Actually, you can hear him do his thing on YouTube. Listen to some old shows. Make sure you get his book. Make sure. Actually, he has two books. And stay tuned for a movie soon. And uh, Marcus, MC, Marcus, darling, it is our time. You have a good night. And uh, go, KC. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Thanks for watching.